0: everyone and welcome to the thrilling adventures of superman a podcast where superman still stands for truth justice and the american way this is episode 80 and my name is michael bradley this time out we will be looking at the 16th storyline from the superman radio serial which is an epic 12 part saga marking the longest storyline to date on the radio show Because this one is twice as long as any of the radio storylines we've covered so far, and I've actually got a lot of notes on it, I'm going to pretty much dispense with the preamble this time so that I can get right into things. With these longer storylines, I'm not quite sure how it's going to go covering it all in one chunk. I'm not sure if it would be better to just soldier through it and, and get it all taken care of in one episode, or if I should split it in two. I tend to go back and forth on episode lengths myself, but I know a lot of listeners like the shorter episodes, while some don't mind the longer ones. So let me know what you think. Write into ThrillingAdventures at greatcrypton.com. You know, do you mind the longer episodes or would you rather I break the longer storylines up into, you know, chunks and, and cover only six or eight story episodes per show episode? You know, just let me know. I'm not really sure how I feel. Uh, Like I said, I go back and forth on it. The way I listen to podcasts, it's pretty easy for me to pause and, you know, come back later that day or or even the next day. But I know not everyone has that preference or that luxury, and and I know some people like sitting down and and hearing the whole thing at one time. A big factor in it will be how my schedule is. You know, more episodes in a story means more time to do notes and record and edit and so on. But at the same time, I really want to know what you, the listener, think too. So write in. Again, the email address is com and let me know your thoughts on it. Right now, we're going to take a small break, play a promo, and then come back and dig right into this episode's story.
1: My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me, help me, listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is The 20 Minute Long Box. 20 Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20 minutelongboxlibsyncom the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random.
0: 16th storyline from the Superman radio show was episodes 85 through 96 of the serial and aired August 26th through September 20th, 1940. That puts it starting just a few days after the likely release of Action Comics number 29 and ending just a few days before the likely release of Action Comics number 30. Superman number 7 came out right in the middle of the storyline and the daily strip wrapped up King of the Kidnapping Ring and started a new storyline while the Sunday Strip continued with its storyline that we'll be looking at probably next month. Our storyline was 12 episodes long, which, as I said, is the longest storyline on the, the serial to date, and has been called Professor Thorpe's Bathysphere.
2: As our story opens, Kent has been called into Editor Perry White's private office. White has another visitor with him, a little silver-bearded old man who is immediately introduced to Kent. Listen. Listen.
0: Clark is introduced to Professor A. B. Thorpe, who explains he is an ichthyologist who has invented a new type of bathysphere, or diving bell, in order to study deep-sea fish. Thorpe is sailing tomorrow from Key West to the island of San Monacan to do research. Perry wants Clark to go along and get a story on the expedition, but more importantly, Thorpe's revolutionary new bathysphere. In order to make the expedition easier, Perry suggests Thorpe go ahead and tell Clark about the bathysphere now. Thorpe says his bathysphere contains a fully equipped scientific laboratory that scientists can use on the floor of the ocean. It also has safety doors, allowing them to walk out onto the ocean bed and can easily go one quarter of a mile down, deeper than any scientist has gone before. He explains he spent his life savings to build the machine, which makes it irreplaceable. The phone rings, and Perry speaks to Sloan, the Daily Planet's teletype editor. Unfortunately, after hanging up, he delivers some bad news, saying that Thorpe's ship, the Juanita, sailed from Key West a few hours earlier. Thorpe can't believe it because the ship was scheduled to leave the next morning, but Perry says the report has been confirmed by the Key West Authority. Thorpe says the bathysphere was aboard the ship, along with all of his research and papers. With Lois gone, Clark states the obvious, saying that the boat must have been stolen. Perry wants to notify the Coast Guard, but Thorpe stops him, saying he doesn't want that kind of publicity. Clark suggests he use the Daily Planet seaplane and fly Thorpe down to Key West, hopefully overtaking the Juanita before it gets too far out to sea. Thorpe is thrilled with the idea and begs Perry, who agrees, and Thorpe and Clark are soon on their way. A short time later, the two soar through the sky aboard the plane. They spot the Juanita, and Thorpe sees a figure waving from the bridge. Though the figure's head is bandaged, Thorpe assumes it's the ship's captain, Maddox. Clark lands the plane in the water near the ship, and they wait to be picked up. Thorpe tells Clark how he's going to give Maddox a piece of his mind, when he spots a couple sailors by the ship's rail. Clark realizes they've wheeled a small cannon onto the deck and are aiming right at the plane. Thorpe yells for them not to shoot, but there's no response from the ship except the firing of the cannon. The first shot misses the plane, if only by feet, so the sailors reload and fire again. As the blast screams towards them, Clark and Thorpe jump from the plane, landing in the water mere seconds before the plane is destroyed. Clark treads water and looks for Thorpe. Not seeing him, he dives down into the water as Superman, and soon spots the professor unconscious and sinking downward. Grabbing him, Superman swims back upward, thankfully surfacing on the back side of the ship, away from the view of the sailors. With Thorpe still unconscious, Superman leaps into the air and soon lands aboard the Juanita. Thorpe revives, and Clark explains that he was able to save him th- from the water. The man they saw earlier on the deck of the ship, the one with the bandaged head, comes towards them. He expresses surprise that it was Thorpe aboard the seaplane. But Thorpe chews him out, saying he had no business firing at anyone. He then demands to know why they left port without him in the first place. And Maddox says he was only following Thorpe's instructions, and produces a telegram allegedly from Thorpe, saying that they should leave port without him and fire at anyone that approaches. Thorpe disavows it, saying he never sent any such message, and is dumbfounded by the forgery. Maddox starts to excuse himself, saying the engine room is calling and Thorpe says to stay the course and come to his cabin as soon as he's able, so that they can discuss things further. Maddox starts to leave, but Thorpe stops him again, asking about the bandage on his face. The captain says it was just a minor accident, and that he'll explain later. So Clark and Thorpe head to the professor's cabin and puzzle over the telegram. The professor says he doesn't know who sent it, but that he's absolutely sure that Maddox is trustworthy. Clark isn't so convinced, however positive that Maddox is in on it since it was he that launched the ship and he that fired on the plane. As they enter the cabin, Clark hears a tapping coming from beneath the floor in the hold of the ship. Listening closer, they realize the tapping is Morse code for SOS. Knowing that it means that someone's in trouble, Clark and Thorpe hurry off and head towards the hold to investigate. Clark and Thorpe run down the corridor towards the hold, thinking someone is possibly being held prisoner. As they reach the hold, though, they find the tapping has stopped. They decide to split up and look around quietly, hoping to not alert anyone topside. Once out of Thorpe's sight, Clark narrates, saying he heard some labored breathing from behind a steel partition. Apparently changing to Superman, he twists the hinges on a bulkhead door and forces it open. Inside, he sees a man, bound, ...gagged and blindfolded on the floor. Changing back to Clark, he unties the man and confirms that he was the one tapping the SOS alert. The man asks who Clark is, but before he can answer, Thorpe enters the room... ...immediately recognizing the once-captive man as Captain Maddox. Thorpe asks why he was down there and, you know, out of uniform and who tied him up. Clark butts in, saying that he couldn't possibly be Maddox... ...as they had just left Maddox on the bridge a few minutes ago but the man says that that couldn't have been him because he really is the real Captain Maddox and he's been tied up in the hold for at least a full day. Kent and Thorpe puzzle over the mystery and Clark says the bandages must have been used to disguise the imposter. Maddox then asks just what the heck is all going on. Thorpe introduces Clark and they explain they heard his SOS signal. Maddox says he was on deck the previous night when Sparks, the ship's radio operator, came by. Something then hit him on the back of the head, and the next thing he knew, he woke up in the hold. Clark explains that the bandaged man is posing as him, likely in in an attempt to seize the ship and the bathysphere. Maddox gets fired up, calling it piracy, and wanting the guy's head, and the three men head back topside. Meanwhile, in the radio cabin, Sparks and Wolf Cleland, a.k.a. the bandaged Captain Maddox imposter, plot to do away with Clark and Thorpe. They get a radio call from a man named Pete Escobar and fill him in that they got the ship okay, but that Thorpe and Clark are now on board. Escobar berates the men and tells them to do away with Thorpe and Clark and that he'll contact them later. After disconnecting the call, Sparks sees Clark, Thorpe, and Maddox on deck and headed right for them. As the three men enter the cabin, Sparks holds them at gunpoint, but Maddox breaks out the hammers of justice and a five-man scuffle ensues. Gunshots ring out, and the struggle continues, and when the dust finally settles, Thorpe has Cleland cornered against the wall with a pistol of his own, while Sparks is on the floor, wounded from a bullet from his own gun. They start to carry Sparks into another cabin for medical attention, when they notice a tattoo on his chest. The tattoo looks to be a map in the shape of an octopus. Thorpe seems to recognize it, and he tells Clark to open Cleland's shirt, which reveals a similar tattoo. Pulling the bandages from Cleland's face, Maddox recognizes him as a notorious sea pirate. Clark demands an explanation for the maps on their chests and why they hijacked the ship. But Cleland refuses to talk, saying that they should ask Thorpe. Taken aback, Clark turns and asks Thorpe if he can shed any light on things, and Thorpe solemnly replies that he can, and that he has a confession, as he's not been entirely honest. Before he can say more, though, they hear Escobar calling on the radio, Clark answers, and Escobar, thinking that Clark is Sparks, asks if they've done away with Thorpe. At Thorpe's prompting, Clark replies in the affirmative, and Escobar tells them to listen close, because he's about to give them their new instructions. Escobar tells them to bring the Juanita to port in Manao at midnight, and anchor it where it won't be seen. They should then meet him at the Waterfront Paradise Cafe, where they will receive further instructions. After Escobar signs off, Maddox says he knows that Escobar is an associate of Cleeland. And speaking of Cleeland, Clark realizes that the crook has gone missing, but Maddox says he had him put in irons, apparently unbeknownst to any of the other three people that were in the room at the exact same time. But satisfied, Clark turns to Thorpe and asks him about the confession he talked about earlier, hoping it would clear up a mystery. Thorpe confirms that he did in fact say that he had a confession. But has now changed his mind. It's a private matter, and he'd rather not discuss it. Not pushing things, Clark proposes an idea. Since Cleland was able to impersonate Maddox, he suggests that they bandage Maddox's face so that he can impersonate Cleland, and Maddox and Clark will keep the appointment with Escobar. Maddox then calls down to the engine room, ordering the ship full speed ahead, saying that they must reach Manau before midnight. Later, Clark and Maddox arrive at the Paradise Café, a most wretched hive of scum and villainy. It's midnight sharp, and Maddox spots Escobar, a burly man with a scar across his cheek. Escobar comments on how the bandages make Maddox, who he thinks is Cleland, remember, look like Maddox, and then asks who Clark is. Clark says he's a deep-sea diver looking to join Escobar's gang as security. Escobar takes the two men into a back room. And asks about Clark, and and asks Clark about the bathysphere. Excuse me, Clark says Thorpe hired him to operate the machine, which Escobar replies is perfect, and then hires him on the spot. He says that they're after two million dollars in gold at the bottom of the ocean, which is where Clark and Thorpe's bathysphere come in, and then he promises them more details later. He goes on to say that he's got twenty of the toughest men he could find in the barroom, and he plans on taking them out to the Juanita via speedboat, killing the ship's crew, and commandeering the vessel. Which is weird, since as far as Escobar knows, they've already got control of the Juanita. They just need to kill Clark and Thorpe. But anyway. Escobar then answers a knock at the door, only to come face-to-face with Cleland. Realizing Clark and Maddox aren't who they say they are, Escobar leaves to get his men to take care of them. Clark tells Maddox to wait by the door, and then smashes the light so that, as he tells Maddox, they'll have the advantage. Hidden by darkness, Clark changes to Superman, and knocks Maddox out just as the gang of thugs enter. He then slings Maddox over his shoulder, and smashes through the wall, making a quick exit and flying back to the Juanita. Shortly after landing on deck, Maddox comes to and wonders how they got back to the ship. Clark is vague on details, but does explain that he was able to grab him after he got knocked out and escape. Thorpe runs up, urgently telling them that Cleland escaped. They say they know, but that their scheme worked and they've learned Escobar and Cleland's plan. They reveal Escobar is after the gold, and Thorpe replies, much to Clark's surprise, that he expected as much. He then finally confesses that he was going after the gold as well. The story about it being a research trip was just a lie to cover his real purpose and avoid publicity. He tells them the gold is at the bottom of Octopus Bay and figured Cleland was after the treasure as soon as he saw his and Sparks' tattoos. Thorpe says he discovered the sunken galleon 30 years ago while on a diving expedition, but was unable to dive deep enough to get the gold. Research in the interim has made him sure that the gold is still on on board the ship since none of it has ever been recovered. He plans on using the treasure to build the greatest scientific laboratory ever created, where scientists could work for the benefit of mankind, unworried about the need of financial support. Seeing that Thorpe wants to help others with the treasure, both Clark and Maddox pledge to aid. But, off in the distance, they hear a speedboat headed towards the Juanita. Looking closer, they realize it's Escobar and his men coming to take the ship. Unable to escape, the Juanita's passengers are sitting ducks for the pirate thugs with no way of escape Thorpe frets over the pending loss of his bathysphere Clark suggests using the cannon that Cleland fired at them earlier as a form of defense Thorpe offers to help but Clark says he'll get a member of the crew and runs off once out of sight Clark changes to Superman and takes to the skies hidden again by darkness the Man of Steel dives into the water and waits for Escobar's boat when the boat passes Superman shoots upward, ramming the boat and causing it to capsize, and then flies back to the Juanita as Escobar and his men flounder about in the ocean. Meeting up with Thorpe once more, he says he was unable to find the cannon, but Thorpe says that's okay since, by some unknown miracle, Escobar's boat has capsized. Clark suggests pulling the men aboard and taking them to port where they can be locked up, but Thorpe says he'll just leave them where they are. He's confident they won't drown even though they're in the middle of the ocean, and he's afraid the story of the gold would get out if he pressed charges. He then tells Maddox to get the ship moving and get to Octopus Bay as soon as possible. As the ship enters into the bay, Clark asks Maddox why it's called Octopus Bay. Maddox says it was named that by the natives as the bay is full of, you guessed it, octopuses. Sure, it's dangerous to go diving there, but there's no other way to get the gold. He then explains that Thorpe has invented a special diving suit, which will allow a diver to withstand the pressures of the dive for 10-minute intervals. He can work for 10 minutes and then rest for 10 minutes in the bathysphere. Thorpe then approaches, excitedly saying he discovered the exact location of the sunken gold and shows Maddox a chart, which is coincidentally exactly where the ship is now. Thorpe says they'll start work immediately and heads off to talk to the diver, Gleason. As the oxygen pump fires up, Maddox takes another look at the chart and worries that the dive, which is 50 fathoms or 300 feet down, is too dangerous, especially since octopuses like deep water. Thorpe and Gleason prepare to go down in the bathysphere, and Thorpe tells Maddox to stay on board the ship and supervise the drop. Clark says he wants to go on the dive as well, but Thorpe says it's too dangerous. However, Clark points out that Perry sent him along to get the story— and Thorpe ultimately relents, realizing that he owes both Perry and Clark. All three men board the bathysphere, and the bell drops down into the water. At 50 feet, Thorpe signals the Juanita, and everything seems to be okay, so they continue diving deeper into the murky water, finally hitting bottom. As Gleason exits in search of the treasure, Thorpe and Clark shut the safety doors, and Thorpe explains how they work, which is basically like an airlock in a spaceship. Clark marvels at the Amazing Machine when Thorpe's breathing becomes labored and both men begin to feel hot. They realize the oxygen in the bathysphere has gone foul. Suffocating, Thorpe falls unconscious and Clark tries desperately to call up to Maddox but receives no answer. Clark tries desperately to get a hold of Maddox. Having no luck, it's time for Superman to take charge. But he's unsure of what to do. If he smashes through the side of the bell, Gleason will be doomed. But if they stay where they are, they'll all die, because, as he says, even Superman can't live without air. He then remembers the safety chamber, and thinks if he can get out and close the doors without letting the water in, he might be able to find a break in the airline. Entering through the inner door of the chamber, he shuts it behind him to protect Thorpe, and then exits through the outer door hoping the compressed air in the chamber will be enough to keep Thorpe alive until he returns. Fighting through the pressure of the deep, Superman spots an octopus with its tentacles wrapped around the bell's surface connection. He swims upward and grabs the octopus and attempts to pull it loose. After quite a struggle, he finally succeeds in pulling it off, only to find himself squeezed in the octopus's tentacles. And you know what that means, kids. It's time for another round of... Superman HATES THE ANIMALS! Superman wrestles with the creature, finally landing a solid punch to his midsection, causing the creature to release him. And from Superman's narration, probably killing it. But, freed, Superman swims back to the bathysphere and changes back to Clark, just as Thorpe comes to. Clark says he doesn't know what happened, and then they hear Gleason tapping on the outside of the bell. Thorpe and Clark let him in and see that he's carrying a huge box. Once removing his diving helmet, Gleason explains he found the ship just where Thorpe said it would be. Clark opens the box to reveal it is filled with piles of Spanish gold doubloons. Gleason then says there are ten more boxes in the ship, as he couldn't carry them all in one trip. Thorpe celebrates the find, thanking Clark and Gleason for their help, and saying he can now make his dreams of the scientific laboratory come true. Gleason said it will take about an hour to get the rest of the boxes aboard the bathysphere. So, he tells them to get to work, just as a call comes in from Maddox. The captain tells them it looks like a storm is coming, and says they need to surface immediately. Thorpe is leery, and Gleason says he's unafraid. But, after further convincing from Clark, Thorpe agrees to head back to the Juanita, and check out how bad the storm actually is. A short while later, we join Clark and Maddox aboard the ship. Apparently, Thorpe and Gleason have gone back down in the bathysphere, despite Maddox's and Clark's warnings. But the storm has gotten much worse since they took the second dive, and Maddox tells Clark to call and tell them to come back up while he goes to batten down the hatches. Clark calls down, but Thorpe says they have to wait until Gleason returns. As thunderclouds boom and winds howl, Maddox tells Clark that the storm is a hurricane and that the ship's anchors are slipping, driving the ship towards some rocks. Maddox yells commands to his crews, telling them to get the ship to full steam immediately, hoping that if they can get positioned right, they'll be able to ride out the storm. Unfortunately, the winds are too strong, and the boat's sea anchor snaps. Clark says the bathysphere will be dragged along the bottom of the sea and starts to bring it up. But Maddox stops him, saying that if they do that, the airline will be snapped. All they can do is hope the ship's anchors catch before they hit the rocks and kills them all. As the Juanita is tossed around by the storm and the waves... Down in the diving bell, Thorpe and Gleason are also being tossed around. At this point, feeling very much like a sock in a dryer, I'd imagine. Thorpe says the bathysphere is three inches of steel, but isn't sure if it will sustain being dragged about. He calls up to Maddox, but the captain repeats that he can't bring up the bell, even going so far as to say they're better off where they're at. He says they can't afford to risk their lives and the lives of the crew before cutting off the call. Gleason tells Thorpe he agrees, and they'll just have to take their chances and hang on the best they can. Back on land, Escobar has somehow made it back to shore and met up with his assistant, Carlos. They watch with binoculars from the shore as the ship is battered by the storm. He revels in their doomed fate, saying once the ship crashes against the rocks and the storm passes, they'll head out to the ship, kill any crew left alive, and take the gold for themselves. And if the ship should somehow avoid the rocks... Well, Escobar has another plan. Meanwhile, aboard the Juanita, Maddox and Clark aren't faring well against the storm. Maddox has had no luck getting the anchors to grab hold, and the ship is being tossed about. Maddox says they've got no other options but to hope. After some repeated exposition about why they can't bring the bell up, a huge clap of thunder echoes, and the waves toss the boat closer to the shark-toothed rocks. Clark and Maddox struggle to turn the boat, but have no luck against the wind. Clark then tells Maddox he's going to lend a hand to the crew, and soon changes to Superman and leaps out into the night and the storm. With the ship only 50 yards from the rocks, Superman devises a plan. He plants himself on the rocks, and as the ship comes bearing down, braces it, holding it steady with his steel-like muscles, allowing the ship's anchors to take hold. Once the storm dies down, he flies back aboard the Juanita and meets up with Maddox. He explains his absence by saying he embarrassingly got seasick during the storm and hid in his cabin until it passed. Maddox can't explain how the ship stopped, but says it must have been a miracle. The men then remember Thorpe and Gleason down in the bathysphere, and Clark attempts to call them, but gets no answer. Checking the oxygen pump, they see the pressure is at zero, and air bubbles in the water tell them the hose must have gotten ripped loose in the storm. They quickly try to bring up the bathysphere, hoping the reserve air tanks were enough, But, unfortunately, Clark notices the cable has gone slack, and it's coming up too quickly. Halting the motor, Maddox checks and realizes that the cable has broken, and that the bathysphere is gone. After some recap about how the bathysphere was lost, and there's nothing that can be done, Clark convinces Maddox to fire up the engine again, on the slim chance that the the diving bell is still attached. Clark suggests using grappling irons or a second diver but Maddox responds that grappling irons won't work that far down and that there are no spare diving suits. The end of the cable finally reaches the ship, verifying that they, along with the air hose, snapped. Even if they could raise the bathysphere, Thorpe and Gleason would be dead from suffocation. Maddox then remembers about the bathysphere's reserve oxygen tanks, but quickly dismisses the idea, saying that while it lasts 15 minutes, that's not helping with the issue of raising the bathysphere. Saying that he's broken up and tired, Clark tells Maddox he's going to his cabin. Once out of sight, he changes to Superman and dives into the ocean depths, hoping he can locate the bathysphere. Meanwhile, in the bell itself, Thorpe and Gleason watch the minutes slip past, and know their end is nigh. They try to phone the surface again, but have no luck. Thorpe laments not listening to Maddox. He says all the gold has been recovered, but now it'll do them no good, and the two men commiserate about their situation. As a last-ditch gamble, Thorpe grabs the diving suit and plans on making an escape. Gleason tries to stop him, but Thorpe holds him at gunpoint, saying he's not willing to die a slow death. He's about to open the safety doors when Gleason hears a tapping outside the bathysphere and then discovers that the bell is rising. Aboard the Juanita, Maddox tells his men to radio the Coast Guard about the bathysphere's loss and then weigh anchor. But then, much to his amazement, he sees the bathysphere breaking water, Calling all hands on deck, they hoist the bathysphere aboard, and Thorpe and Gleason exit. Clark runs on deck, expressing joy over their miraculous save. Thorpe tells them they've got the gold, but says they'll leave it all in the machine until the next morning, so that they can all get some rest. Meanwhile, Escobar and Carlos are in a rowboat, heading silently towards the Juanita. Carlos puzzles over how they escaped the storm, and Escobar says it doesn't matter, because it just makes things easier. He saw them bring the bathysphere aboard with the gold inside, and now all they need to do is get it. Arriving at the ship, the two bandits use a rope to climb aboard. Seeing the diving bell, Escobar climbs inside and starts to hand the gold out to Carlos to put in sacks. Just then, Maddox and Thorpe start to approach. With knife in hand, Escobar and Carlos crouch in the shadows, ready to attack. As Maddox and Thorpe approach... Escobar and Carlos wait in the shadows behind the diving bell. Unable to sleep, Thorpe approaches, intending to show the recovered gold to Maddox. The captain thinks he hears a noise, as if a rowboat or something is banging against the side of the ship, but Thorpe dismisses it, saying he can look into it later. As Maddox turns on a flashlight, both men are jumped by the thugs and knocked out. The bandits then return to their work hurriedly putting the gold into sacks and soon carrying them back to the rowboat to make their escape. A short while later, Clark tends to Maddox and Thorpe's wounds. Unfortunately, Maddox has been badly hurt and is still unconscious. Clark told the crew to head to Manao Harbor so that he can receive proper medical attention. After he finished bandaging up Thorpe, he confirms that all the gold has been stolen. Thorpe relates how they were jumped by Escobar and another man and that the thugs probably escaped in the rowboat that Maddox had heard. He blames himself for not letting Maddox investigate, saying that if Maddox dies, the blood will be on his hands. As the Juanita plows full steam ahead towards the harbor, meanwhile, back in Metropolis, Perry had become worried after not hearing from Clark and being unable to contact the Juanita by radio. He assigned another reporter, Bill Wentworth, to try and find the boat. Having overheard, Jimmy Olsen stowed away in the plane, and both Bill and Jimmy are in a hotel in Manau Harbor. While trying to call Perry, Bill chastises Jimmy for stowing along, but Jimmy pleads, saying he had to. He says Clark is a good friend, and after all Clark has done for him, he'd do anything to help. Apparently swayed by the boy's tears, Bill hangs up the phone and says Jimmy can stay as long as he promises to not leave his sight. Bill explains that he learned from Harbor Police that the Juanita left for an undisclosed location three days earlier and hadn't been heard from since. He's worried about the hurricane, saying the Juanita is a small ship and may not have survived. He also fills in Jimmy, and any new listeners, on the bathysphere, Thorpe's expedition, and even the hunt for the sunken gold, even though he shouldn't know about that part. They then head out to charter a boat so that they can look for the Juanita themselves. Having learned they might be able to get one from Escobar, they go to the Paradise Cafe and the bartender directs them to a back room. As they talk, Escobar wants to know why they want to use the boat and Bill says they simply want to take a cruise for a few days. But Jimmy, before Bill can stop him, blurts out that they're looking for the Juanita and their missing friend. Escobar finally says his boat is not for hire and Bill starts to leave, but Jimmy stalls saying he's tying his shoe. Once out of the bar, they hurry back to the hotel. Bill yells at Jimmy for, you know, blabbing about the Juanita, saying it, it could be trouble if Thorpe has already found the gold. Jimmy says if Thorpe did find it, he hasn't got it now, and reveals that when he bent down to tie his shoe, what he was really doing was picking up something from under the table. A gold Spanish doubloon, dated 1874. Bill worries that they might be in danger if Escobar is on to them. Just then, two large men exit the cafe and charge after them. Bill and Jimmy run to try and escape the thugs and save their lives. Aboard the Juanita, Clark tells Thorpe that they should be in Manau Harbor in about two hours. After some dialogue recapping the pertinent events till now and some mopey woe is me isms from Thorpe, the two men head down to check on Maddox and find he has turned deathly pale and that his pulse is very weak. Saying Thorpe looks pale as well, Clark tells him to go upstairs and get some rest. He then changes to Superman, and, knowing Maddox won't last the rest of the trip, picks him up and slips quietly up to the deck, all the while trying to avoid the crew. After narrowly missing being seen by a sailor, Superman leaps off towards Manau with a captain in his arms. Meanwhile, Bill and Jimmy race through the streets of Manau, finally arriving back at their hotel with their pursuers hot on their tails. While Escobar's thugs bang on the door, Bill opens the window intent on escaping that way, but is dismayed that there's nothing to use to climb down, and nothing to land on if they jumped. They then hear the thugs heading back down the stairs. After more recap about how Escobar has the treasure and how Jimmy found the doubloon that proves it, a stone crashes through the window. A piece of paper wrapped around the stone has on it a message written in Spanish, and Bill translates the message as, This is your last warning. Unless you give up, death will be your end. Bill reassures Jimmy, saying Escobar's men won't do anything to him, as he's just a kid. But if anything happens to him, Jimmy should get to a phone as soon as possible and call Perry for help. Another message bearing rock then comes to the window, this one simply reading, You have one minute to give up. Remembering the phone, Bill tries to call the police, but finds the wires have been cut. As Bill reassures Jimmy and starts to say it's probably all just a bluff, they smell smoke and realize the floor is getting hot. Thinking it might just be a smoke bomb and an attempt to scare them out, Bill tells Jimmy to put a rag over his mouth, and they'll wait it out. But a faint crackling noise alerts Bill that the building actually is on fire. They move the chairs from in front of the door, but find the hallway is filled with flames. Out of options, Bill says their only choice is to give up and yells out the window. Unfortunately, the men have gone, not wanting to wait around after setting the place on fire. And as the hotel's door falls in and the flames inch closer, Bill and Jimmy realize that they really are trapped. When our next episode begins, Superman has arrived in Manau with Maddox. And now Clark speaks with a doctor who says that Maddox's prognosis is unknown, but that he'll be given all the attention that he needs. Knowing he has to get back to the Juanita, Clark starts to leave when he sees a red glow in the sky near the waterfront and realizes that it's a fire. He runs near the building and thinks he sees a face in the window of one of the upper floors. Ducking around the corner, he changes to Superman and leaps up at the side of the building and through a window. Charging through the flames, he checks the rooms one by one, finally coming across the room where Bill and Jimmy are now unconscious. Grabbing both figures... He runs back down the hall and crashes through the window, leaping into the sky and away from the inferno. A short while later, Clark sits with the recovering Jimmy. We get a quick lesson on the human body and dehydration, and then Clark says Bill is suffering from some slight burns, but that he'll recover. After dismissing Jimmy's questions about how he and Bill got out of the burning building, Clark asks him to tell him everything that happened before the fire and we get a recap of Jimmy's and Bill's adventures from the last couple episodes. Clark lightly chastises Jimmy for, again, stowing away on a plane, but says he'll keep it a secret and won't tell Perry if Jimmy stays out of trouble from now on. He tells Jimmy to stay at the doctor's house and rest while he goes to check on the Juanita. Jimmy says he wants to go, and while Clark is at first very reluctant... After Jimmy pleads with him, Clark relents, saying that it just might be safer if he comes along so that Clark can keep an eye on him. A little bit later, the thugs talk with Escobar, explaining how they burnt the hotel. Escobar is pleased that Bill and Jimmy are dead, but says they still need to do away with Thorpe. He then shows them several underwater mines that are stored in a closet. Escobar plans to plant them in a narrow channel leading to the harbor so that the Juanita will hit them when it passes through. The men arrive shortly at the channel and see the Juanita a little way offshore. They place the mines one at a time in the water and let the tide carry their boat safely away from the mines before starting up the boat's motor and making their exit. At the same time, Clark and Jimmy are on the dock and see the Juanita coming in with Thorpe on deck. After a quick lesson on nautical terminology, they see Escobar's boat, even though they don't know it's him, and the men inside dropping something into the water and then motor away. The Juanita starts to enter the narrow channel, and Jimmy says he's worried that the boat won't fit. But, Clark says, there's absolutely nothing to be scared of, not knowing the doom that awaits the ship. Clark and Jimmy wait on the dock for the Juanita to enter the channel. Jimmy again spots the motorboat they'd seen earlier, and wonders why one of the men is kneeling in the bow of the boat, watching the Juanita through binoculars. Clark tells Jimmy to stay put, saying he's going to call the doctor and check on Bill's condition. But once around the corner, we learn that Clark recognized the man as Escobar. And after changing to Superman, he dashes into a row of trees to get a better look. Using his super hearing, he overhears Escobar and Carlos talking about how the Juanita will hit the mines. Knowing he has to work fast, no matter who sees him, Superman leaps into the air and then dives back down into the water. Using all of his strength, Superman explodes mine after mine, and as the ship bears down, he thinks he's gotten them all when he spots two more. But the Man of Steel is able to explode those as well, allowing the Juanita to dock safely. Meeting back up with Jimmy, the boy excitedly tells Clark how he missed a show. He tells how a man in blue tights and a red cape dove into the water, and then things started exploding. He asks if, maybe, possibly, it could have been Superman himself. Clark plays dumb, but Jimmy reminds him about the man who saved Lois Lane when she was tossed out of the plane by the yellow mask. Clark laughs it off, but Jimmy swears to what he saw. And as to Juanita docks, Clark says they'll talk about it later, before greeting Thorpe as he deboards the ship. Thorpe is abuzz with excitement, at both seeing Clark, who had disappeared off the ship, and having just witnessed Superman's spectacular feat. Jimmy keeps trying to talk about Superman, but Clark changes the subject, introducing Jimmy and explaining why he and Bill were there. He promises more explanations after things have settled down, and Clark, Jimmy, and Thorpe leave to go to the doctor's house to check up on Maddox and Bill. Meanwhile, though, unbeknownst to any of them, Carlos follows, hidden by shadows. He then returns to the Paradise Cafe and tells Escobar that they're heading to the doctor's. Neither man can explain how any of them are still alive, or about the mines, or about the man who flew like a bird. Escobar says he's sending a messenger to the doctor's house and tells Carlos to make sure it's delivered immediately. At the doctor's, Clark explains he hitched a ride in a passing speedboat in order to rush Maddox to the hospital, and despite the lame excuse, Thorpe buys it. The subject then turns to the gold, and Thorpe seems resigned to the idea that it's gone for good. They can't go back to the authorities because even if they were able to get the gold, it would be confiscated afterward. So, Clark says, they'll just have to tackle Escobar themselves. Clark tells Jimmy to wait at the doctors, and he and Thorpe head back to the Juanita. Once they're gone, Jimmy thinks about what he saw at the dock, and is sure that it was Superman. A knock at the door, and Escobar's man delivers the message that claims to be from an enemy of Escobar and says that Thorpe's gold is hidden in a cave behind the cemetery. Thinking this is a great opportunity to show Clark that he can do things himself, Jimmy heads out to the cave to recover the gold alone, not knowing that it's a trap. When the final episode opens, Clark and Thorpe are returning to the doctors. They enter and are surprised when the doctor's assistant tells them that Jimmy left alone. Clark is fairly concerned, since it's getting dark and Manau is a strange place, but Thorpe isn't worried and the two go to check on Maddox. Meanwhile, Jimmy climbs over the rocks, looking for the cave. The shadows cast by the setting sun make for an eerie scene, but Jimmy bravely charges forth, determined to find the gold. Finally locating the cave, he heads inside, only to be confronted and taken captive by Escobar and Carlos. Escobar laughs off Jimmy's mission and his threats that his friends will find him, and the two men shove Jimmy into a room and then head back to the Paradise Café. An hour later, Clark paces anxiously, worried about Jimmy. He decides to head out on a hunch that if he finds Escobar, he'll find Jimmy as well. He then tells Thorpe to stay at the doctor's, and, once outside, switches to Superman and leaps into the sky, headed to Escobar's. Landing outside the café, Superman sees Escobar and Carlos inside, breaks through the door, and demands to know where Jimmy is. Escobar, not knowing who Superman is, holds him at gunpoint and orders Carlos to attack. But one punch from the Man of Steel, and Carlos is down. However, before Superman can go after Escobar himself, the room begins to rumble and shake. The earthquake causes the roof to collapse, pinning Escobar and Carlos underneath. Superman is unharmed, however, and he begins tearing through the debris to rescue the thugs. He's too late to save Carlos, but Escobar clings to life, and is able to reveal that Jimmy is in the cave behind the graveyard before dying himself. High into the sky leaps Superman, high enough that he is able to survey the whole town. Finally spotting the cave, he dives downward, only to find the entrance covered with rocks, courtesy of the quake. After easily tearing through the fallen rocks... He hears Jimmy's muffled screams and smashes through the door. The two run back down the tunnel, narrowly escaping the cave, before a second quake crosses the tunnel to cave in. Outside the cave, Jimmy stands in amazement at the tremendous figure before him. Superman refuses to answer any questions about his true identity, but says someday, Jimmy just might find out. Superman then bids him goodbye and leaps off into the sky, promising that Clark Kent will be along shortly. The End
1: In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer in association with the Superman Podcast Network presents Superman in
3: the Bronze
2: Age
1: Superman of the Bronze Age is a bi weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com.
0: On a casting note, Jimmy Olsen was not voiced by Jackie Kelk in this arc. I don't know the name of the actor who did, but it's clearly not Kelk, as this actor has a much higher voice, making him sound actually much closer to 14, as Jimmy is supposed to be, or even younger, uh, to be honest. I wasn't really as fond of this actor. Um, He does sound much younger, much more vulnerable, and while that did work in their favor at times in this particular storyline, I think long term it would not give them as many options with the character. The actor who played Escobar was, uh, was very good, though, on the other hand. He struck that great balance between being sinister and campy. And you may hear him as I edit in clips, and he really seemed to get more into the role as the story went on, uh, with his performance in the final episode really being the best. But this was just such a good storyline. It started out a bit slow, but really picked up in the second half. After the last storyline, which was perhaps the worst one from the show thus far, and some, while not bad, but far from outstanding storylines of late as a whole, I really didn't have the highest expectations for this one. Um, I was also a little nervous due to the extended length. And, I mean, there were some issues with that, you know, growing pains, I guess you might say, with the longer storyline. But overall, I really did... Like this one for a number of reasons. But to get into the episode specific notes, the very first time I heard this storyline, years ago, I was not familiar with the term bathysphere. Once I looked it up, I realized what it was, but I don't think I'd actually heard the term bathysphere before. Doing notes for the show here, I looked into it more just to get the history behind it, and a bathysphere is a spherical deep sea submersible vehicle built and designed in 1929 by naturalist William Beebe and engineer Otis Barton. And they used the bathysphere in the early 1930s to do first-hand studies of marine life. Much like as presented in the show, the bathysphere was a very dangerous vehicle because they were using it to go deeper than anyone had gone before. And while Beebe and Barton did some unmanned tests, they had no idea how the human body would react to diving that deep. And even once they were more confident on the safeness of that, they were still presented with the very real idea that, just like happened in the story, a break in the cables connecting the bathysphere to the surface could leave people stranded. If I remember, I will put some links in the show notes, and you can read more online about their building of the bathysphere and and the experiments they did with it. Beebe and Barton used their bathysphere for four or five years before retiring it and then soon technology gave way to other, more safer vehicles. One interesting thing, though, is that the B.B. Barton bathysphere wasn't very big. From photos online, it looks like that you could put two people inside, and they would have barely enough room to work, where in the show, at one point, there are three people in the bathysphere with plenty of room to maneuver around. But they also say at the beginning of the, the first episode here, that Thorpe's bathysphere is a new kind, so maybe it was larger. Um, Thorpe does kind of seem to say that when he's describing the ship to Clark and Perry, so maybe. Or it's possible that the writers of the show just didn't understand the size of the original. Uh, I don't know. There is some weirdness with the depth of the dive that I'll get to later, so it's possible, I guess. What I thought was really interesting, though, is that Beebe stopped using his bathysphere in 1934, and it remained in storage until 1939, where it was used as the centerpiece of the New York Zoological Society's exhibit at the New York World's Fair. And from there, you know, I, you can imagine it catching the eye, the eye of the show's writers as the 1940 season of the fair was well underway at this point. So, again, it's just cool how real-world events and pop culture of the day seem to be influencing or, or sparking story ideas For Superman in all three mediums. Moving on, Clark gets called to Perry's office, again, and told to do a story. Perry says he wants Clark to accompany Thorpe on the expedition, but is more interested in the bathysphere itself. And then he says,
3: Suppose you tell Ken about it right now, Professor?
0: Yes, because it's the first episode, and the audience needs exposition. But here's where it gets a little weird... ...concerning the depth of the bathysphere. Thorpe says the bathysphere can go easily a quarter of a mile... ...deeper than any man has gone before. But at this point, the record set by, the BB and, uh, set by BB and Barton in their bathysphere... ...was more than 3,028 feet... ...which is nearly three times what Thorpe describes. And worse, according to the NOAA... ...the average depth of the ocean is 2.65 miles... So, going a quarter of a mile down, and when the show actually gets underway, we find out that the sunken ship is on the floor of the ocean, of course, but they only dive 50 fathoms, which is about 300 feet. Free divers can go down that far without a ship. It's not easy, but they do it. But I just chalk all this up to a lack of understanding about the technical side of things on the writer's part. And yes, that's a... um, fault of the writers for not knowing what they're writing about but at the same time you know they didn't have the internet to look things up and all this uh, stuff with diving it was very new technology like I said they'd only stopped using the B.B. Barton bathysphere roughly five years before this show aired so you know the the information probably wasn't as uh, freely available as it is today if you add a few zeros to the end of what they're talking about it's fine we do get a, a return of Clark's piloting knowledge as this brought back up uh, again here when he offers to fly Thorpe down to Key West in the Daily Planet seaplane. I was a little bit concerned after the last arc that maybe they were doing away with that bit of Clark's character, but I'm glad that they brought it back up here. I, I just love the continuity of it. Uh, we'll just have to call last storyline a fluke, which really describes the whole storyline. But uh, I would like to know, though, how Perry or whoever convinced the Daily Planet publishers to spend $100,000 on a seaplane uh, not to mention insurance and the cost of training people how to fly it I would like to know how they did that so I can convince my publisher to buy us a seaplane yes, yes, I know I live in a landlocked midwestern state but I could find something to do with it trust me oh, but even though the, the planet had a seaplane, I guess they don't anymore since it gets blowed up real good as soon as they get there Hopefully, the replacement cost won't come out of Clark's check because he doesn't seem to be as loose with the wallet in the radio show as in the comics. Um, they again changed the way they handled the underwater voice this episode. This time, it sounds more like the other end of a conversation from an old telephone.
3: Professor! Professor Thorpe! Why? Well, he hasn't come up? Great Scott, I hope he wasn't hit by that shell.
2: Well, this is where Clark Kent gives way to Superman, and quickly. I'll have to work fast. Dive down after him. Here goes. Down. Down faster. No time to lose for the life at stake. Where is he? It's hard to see through this murky water. Hold on. What's that? It looks like... Yes, it is. Professor Thorpe sinking to the bottom. Must have struck his head when he fell. (sighs) Ah, got him. Now to bring him to the surface. Up,
0: up, up. I'd say that's better than Bud Call. You're just talking with his hand over his mouth. But I'm still not real thrilled with it. But like I said before, I'm not sure they're ever going to come up with something that you know completely satisfies me. So whatever. Um, we don't get the revelation until next episode. But I thought the idea of Cleveland. Bandaging up his face and masquerading as Captain Maddox was pretty brilliant. My complaint about it, though, is that if Maddox was in a an accident severe enough to require his entire face to be bandaged, it seems like it would be far more serious of an accident than he lets on, which would have caused people aboard the ship to question when and how it happened, you know, without their knowledge. I don't know, it's just one of those. It's one of those little nitpicks that I feel a little bad about. I mean, it's not a major issue, but it sticks out, and I would have liked more explanation on it. Moving on to episode 86, continuing with the same topic, even though I thought we needed more details on how Cleland pulled it off, I did like the masquerade, and I was happy with the revelation in this episode, too, because at the end of last episode, Clark told Thorpe that he was sure that Maddox was mixed up in all the strangeness. And at that point, I figured Maddox was the villain of the piece, which, to be frank, made me roll my eyes. So, I was happy to see that while the bandaged Maddox did end up being the bad guy, at least for this part of the story, it wasn't THE Captain Maddox. So that was kind of a nice surprise. In fact, they really did a better job with handling all of the villains this time. First, we think it's Maddox, and... Then they reveal that the fake Maddox is actually Cleland and he's working with Sparks, who is the boat's radio operator. So then I figured it was the typical two man setup. But then by the end of this episode, we find out that the main villain is Pete Escobar, who, while he does have his flunkies working for him, uh, namely Carlos, he's pretty much his own man. So it was nice to see that not only did they slowly unveil the villain, at the end, it turned out to be a somewhat different setup than we've seen in the past. After my my uh, frequent complaining about the rut they were in with that, I'm I'm really glad they did something different, and I hope they can keep coming up with new scenarios, new situations, new setups as we continue to go forward with the with the serial. I I gotta say though, I really didn't understand why. Sparks and Cleland had maps of Octopus Bay tattooed on their chests. That seems really extreme for two guys who were merely working for the guy who was going after the gold. But maybe they were just, you know, hardcore committed. Episode 87. Near the beginning of this episode, Thorpe looks around for Cleveland only to find that he's gone. And Maddox responds that he had him thrown in th- into the brig. Which leads me to wonder when this happened. There's no break between the final scene in the last episode and the opening scene here, and at no point was there a chance for Maddox to order his men to get Cleland, much less for them to come in, get him, and take him out without either Clark or Thorpe noticing. I suppose it's a minor, a minor issue, but it's a pretty odd one since they could have just as easily thrown in a single line of dialogue with Maddox giving the order, and then some background noise as he's taken away. And they never mention Sparks again in the rest of the story, so I guess his dead body is still, you know, laying on the ship somewhere with bleeding out from a gunshot wound. Um, it, it should also be pointed out while we're talking about things I didn't like, and, and I did like the story a lot, we'll, we'll get to that stuff in a minute, but Um, It should also be pointed out that in this episode, the location of the Paradise Cafe is pronounced Meneo, where in all the episodes for the rest of the story, and and even next storyline where it's referenced again, spoiler alert, it's pronounced by the actors as Meneo. I'm not sure what that was about, but it was pretty confusing when I was trying to do my synopses. Episode 88, at the beginning of this episode... Escobar and his men are coming at the Juanita, you know, armed to the teeth, and Superman says Faster!
2: Faster! Escobar will start shooting soon. Lives mean nothing to him. He wants Thorpe's diving bell.
0: And my thought was, yeah, that pretty much describes most of the villains Superman has faced to this point. In any medium. Now, to be fair, well, I was going to say that the radio villains haven't been a little less kill-happy, but Really, they've not. I mean, the radio series has just been somewhat more grounded in their storytelling, and and so their villains have been less over-the-top violent, you know? I I think if they could get away with a story about exploding people on the radio, that they would probably do it, you know? Um, Hearing Superman speak underwater in this episode, it sounds basically like the last episode, but I'm wondering if Collier wasn't speaking into a, a tin coffee can or something. I guess there's an actual piece of equipment used in recording to emulate that, but don't ask me what the name of it is. Maybe someone out there with more professional recording experience can tell me. Uh, Anyway, like I said, I'm not thrilled with it, but so it goes. I did get a chuckle, though. (laughs) Superman capsizes Escobar's boat, dumping them all into the water, and then he returns to the Juanita as Clark. Apparently, somehow completely drawing himself off, even his hair, since Thorpe never mentions him being all wet. But then they just leave the villains in the middle of the ocean. Well, maybe not the middle, but they're pretty far out at this point. And Thorpe says, oh, they'll be all right. Now, clearly they were, since we haven't seen the last of Escobar, but sheesh, you know? (laughs) And, And to Clark's credit, at least he did suggest picking them up and taking them to jail. Thorpe talked him out of it, saying he didn't want the publicity that would come with pressing charges, but at least he wanted to do the right thing. And it's interesting, because had this been a siegel written story, there's little doubt in my mind that this scene would have been at the end of the story, and Superman would be fully supportive of leaving them there to drown, you know, being a fitting end for their kind and all that. But anyway, a little later... Clark questions Maddox about why Octopus Bay is named like it is. Now, in the second episode, when the tattoos of the maps are found on Cleveland and Sparks' uh, their chests, they say the map's in the shape of an octopus. So, you think that's how it got its name, right? Oh, no. As we find out here, Maddox tells Clark that the natives named it Octopus Bay because it's apparently full of octopuses. So I wonder if that stuff with Cleland and Sparks and the maps on their chests wasn't tacked on later in order to maybe stretch the episode out another episode or two. Or stretch the story out, excuse me, another episode or two. Neither Cleland or Sparks are mentioned again in the story beyond the third episode. And it could have just as easily been Escobar who was masquerading as as Maddox. And then he then escapes off the boat somehow just like Cleland did and later returns to attack just like he did in this episode I don't know for sure, but it it does make me wonder I didn't go into detail with it in my synopsis but I thought they did a good job in this episode of explaining how the bathysphere worked uh, you know, how the diver was able to get in and out
4: Professor, would you mind explaining how that safety chamber works? Just a moment, Kent As soon as Grayson leaves the outer door in his diving suit Okay, but how will you know when he does? The green light on the control panel will flash. There it is. He's outside now. Oh. Well, didn't the water rush into the chamber when he opened the outer door? Of course, Kent. But I took that into consideration when I designed the bathosphere. Oh, I see. Seems uh, a bit stuffy in here. Yes, it does. But uh, about the safety chamber, Professor... Well, as you know, the chamber has an inner and outer door. Both of them strong enough to withstand tremendous pressure. Right now, the space between them is filled with water. Yes. But when I press this white button on the panel, compressed air forces the water out of the chamber and closes the outer door at the same time. I see. Listen. Professor Thorpe, it's amazing. Eh? Well, what did you say, Kent? I said your your diving bell is a, a marvelous invention. I'm glad you like it, Kent. But my, my throat seems
0: dry. It might be a bit heavy handed in the presentation, but again, given that these were aimed at kids, not adults like me, I think it's fine. Episode 89. At the beginning of this episode, Clark and Maddox are trapped in the bathysphere. Uh, the air has gone foul, and Clark tries to call up to Maddox, but has no luck. He's then thinking how to get out of the situation and says that if he can't do it, they'll all die because even Superman can't live without air. I don't think on the radio we've ever had Superman trapped in a situation where he'd be deprived of oxygen like this. But in the comics, we've seen him spend hours underwater, not to mention breathing in gases and, you know, have no adverse effects, except for the story from Superman number seven. And it isn't a case here of, you know, he can't live forever without air. He'd mentioned at the, at the very end of last episode that the lack of air was already starting to affect him. And Thorpe was unconscious at that point, so, you know, it wasn't just him playing the part of Clark Kent. So I found this interesting as another difference between the comics and radio versions. But then we get to the most awesome part of the episode, where Superman fights a giant octopus. Yes, it's more poor treatment of animals from Superman. And I'm pretty sure, going by the dialogue, that the thing was dead by the time Superman got done with it. But it was an exciting moment in the episode. Again, you can imagine the kids at home sitting there, listening to the radio, visualizing Superman engaged in this tremendous battle with this beast. It's just a very uh, awesome thing to, to visualize. And it's funny because just yesterday, I was reading a story... Uh, I think it was from 1942, where the opening splash showed Superman fighting an octopus. It wasn't something that happened in the story, though, sadly, but still, I I found the coincidence kind of amusing. The sound effects for the storm in this episode were excellent. Probably among the best sound effects they've had in the show to this point. They were natural-sounding... You know, by standards of 1940 radio drama. And while they were loud, they didn't become a distraction or drown out the dialogue. And they also really helped build the tension at the end of the episode, which presented a very real situation. As I talked about earlier, the bathysphere was not a safe piece of machinery. And the idea that Thorpe and Gleason were stuck at the bottom of the ocean, combined with the sound effects of the storm, left this episode with a really great cliffhanger. And I loved, at the end of the episode, Maddox is explaining what could happen. And he says, all we can do is hope for the best. But we're all doomed. And then there's a huge clap of thunder as the episode fades out. It's just a really excellent cliffhanger.
3: should Captain Maddox, the sea well, What's wrong with it? It's gone. The line snapped. Kansas ripped to shreds. Oh, oh, I was afraid of that. Well, isn't there anything else we can do, Captain? I am afraid we're licked. What? What about Thorpe and Gleason? The bathysphere will be dragged along the bottom. They'll be killed. Can't help it, Kent. There's nothing we can do. What? She won't hold in this sea. What's the bathysphere? We can try to bring it up. No, no, don't touch it. you will snap the airline. They'll suffocate. You mean to say you're going to stand by and let them die like trapped rats? Kent, all we can do is hope for the best. The anchors may catch and hold before we hit the rocks. Either that or we're all doomed.
2: And the
0: wild, screaming fury of a episode 90. My comments for this episode are, are, for the most part, a bit more general. As the bathysphere is being tossed around at the bottom of the ocean, Clark and Maddox are aboard the ship, worrying about it. I kept wondering why Clark wasn't doing something. He spends a lot of time pleading and fretting like you would expect Lois or another female character to do, given the way they've been portrayed in a majority of the episodes until now. He's the hero. I I don't understand why he didn't slip away uh, to to attempt a rescue. I mean, he eventually does, but when it happens, he slips away to save the Juanita from crashing into the rocks, not to save the bathysphere. It's It's a very dramatic episode other than that, though. The Great Storm sound effects continue, and the scene with Superman saving the Juanita is very exciting. Much like with the octopus scene from last episode... It's a great visual moment, as you can imagine Superman planting himself on the rock in the middle of the fierce storm, and he halts the ship as it comes in and and holds it steady until the anchors catch. Though, you'd think that while crashing into the rocks would obviously be a problem, if it's a storm at sea, you'd think anchoring the ship in one spot would actually be worse because it would increase the risk of damage and of the boat capsizing. If it was just being tossed around... Uh, free, it it could sort of go with the flow, so to speak. I don't know. I'm I'm not really. I'm really not a sailor, but it it just makes more sense to me. I did like Clark's excuse for being gone. However, Kent, Kent, where did you
3: disappear to? Well, I. Uh... I'm ashamed to say it, Captain. I got seasick during the height of the storm and went down to my cabin. Oh, <laughs> just seasick? Yes. Well, uh, thank heaven you're all right. I was afraid you'd been washed overboard by those waves. Oh, I'm all right. Say, what happened, Captain? Things
0: look very It's a bad. very weak and timid Clark moment, uh, much more closer to the kind of the typical or stereotypical portrayal that people would expect to see from Clark Kent uh, in his most quote-unquote classic form. So, my last comment about this episode is that this is the sixth episode of the story, and the story is not over yet. Given that this is the first storyline to not end after three or six episodes, I wonder what listeners at the time thought. Did they even notice? And if they did, how surprised were they when they the story didn't end? At the end of this episode, now that Superman has saved the ship from the storm and they are raised in the bathysphere... Were they expecting it to still be attached? Given the age of the episodes, we'll likely never know what the audience thought of anything other than the basic, you know, rating information. But these are the things I think about. Episode 91, continuing from his portrayal last episode, Clark is way too overdramatic at the top of this one. They've tried to pull the bathysphere up and only find the the cables are snapped and he is absolutely freaking out about it
3: don't you understand kent the bathysphere is broken loose from its cables it's lost somewhere on the bottom of octopus bay But captain it, it can't be professor thorpe and gleason the diver are inside the bathysphere i know captain there's nothing on god's earth we can do for them that hurricane must have snapped the steel cables like they were cotton threads captain maybe you're wrong why don't we keep the donkey engine running? Bring the cables up, even if there's only a slim chance. There isn't even a slim chance, Kent. To... All right, go ahead, start it up. <laughs> See? See how slack the cables are. If the bath the spear was attached to them, they'd be as taut as drum heads? Oh, no, Kent, she's gone forever. But isn't there anything we can do? Use grappling irons or send down a diver? Grappling irons won't work in 300 feet of water. And we haven't a spare diving suit on board. Uh look. The end of the cables. Stop the engine. Oh, you were right, Captain. Both cables snapped off and the air hose with them. I guess that means even if we could raise the bathysphere...
0: Some of that I can understand, what with the meek and mild persona. But it's just way too much here. Again, I'd expect Superman, even given only the portrayal we've seen so far to be more proactive, but it isn't until after he finds out about the reserve oxygen that he actually makes an excuse and goes to work. And I've gotta ask, if the bathysphere has a 15-minute oxygen reserve, why didn't that kick in earlier when the octopus wrapped around the line? However, I did like that we only got Gleason and Thorpe's and then Maddox's perspective on Superman's rescue of the bathysphere. It's not something I want to see happen all the time, but for a change, it was it was kind of neat. Though, again, we have Superman diving into the water for a rescue and then immediately afterwards, meeting up with Maddox, and yet, apparently somehow, drying himself completely in the process, since no one says, uh, why are you all wet? <laughs> uh, moving on to episode 82. Near the beginning here, Maddox is worried about Escobar coming back after the gold, and... Thorpe just laughs it off, saying, We left them floundering about in the harbor. Yes, yes you did, which is exactly why you should be worried. Unless you were expecting them to drown, in which case you are a horrible, horrible person. But had you taken them to jail like sensible folk, then you'd have no reason to worry. But I also wonder how Escobar and Carlos were able to get $2 million in gold doubloons into sacks and carry them in a rowboat. I realize that there are a lot of factors, but it would not be a stretch to say two million dollars of gold could weigh thousands of pounds. That's a lot of weight for a rowboat to take on. And remember, this is 1940, so two million dollars is going to be a lot more money back then. But just with today's figures, let's say each doubloon weighs one ounce and costs five hundred dollars. Again, lots of factors, but those are nice round numbers. That's 250 pounds. Now, 250 pounds is feasible, but not when you figure in inflation and the fact that one doubloon probably wouldn't get you $500. But anyway, moving on. I was enjoying the storyline up to this point, but here is where things started picking up for me. Introducing Jimmy and Bill Wentworth and giving them their own storyline really helped the overall story because after more than seven episodes, the stuff with Clark and Maddox and Thorpe and the ship was getting a bit repetitive. And I like how they introduced Jimmy and Bill already in Manau. It saved a lot of ultimately unnecessary scenes with Bill you know, being assigned the story and traveling down and Jimmy stowing away. The narrator just explains all that in a couple lines and they cut right to the chase. But also, Perry sending Bill down to look for Clark was a nice bit of uh, symmetry, I guess you might say, since we've seen Clark assigned to go look for missing people before. And it actually helps those make a little more sense, because now I can believe that it's just a thing they do. When a reporter or someone goes missing, they send another man down. It's no less dumb that they aren't alerting the authorities, but I can accept dumb in the context and logic of the story as long as they're consistent about it, which this provides for me. For those among us who are fans of the George Reeves Adventures of Superman, there was one bit that stood out.
3: Now, this is the condition. You are never to leave my sight, no matter what happens. Is that clear? Absolutely, Mr. Wentworth. And don't call me Mr. Wentworth. My name is Bill.
5: Okay,
0: Bill. Sure, it's not the same thing, but that line jumped out at me, given the classic phrase that Jimmy hears a lot in (laughs) Adventures of Superman. Unfortunately, we also have a plot glitch in this scene. Bill says he learned of the hunt for the sunken gold from Perry, but as far as we the listeners knew, Perry was every bit as in the dark about it as Clark, and Clark didn't learn until long after they got down to the Juanita. Now, I can no-prize it and say that Thorpe told Perry in confidence before they involved Clark, but that's never said in the episodes, and it wouldn't really make a lot of sense anyway. I did enjoy the cliffhanger at the end of this episode, though, with Jimmy and Bill being chased by Escobar's men. It was a, a bit of a different cliffhanger than we've ever gotten before. Not only with the situation, but also the idea that there's no chance Superman will swoop in at the beginning of next episode and save them because he doesn't even know that they're there. Episode 93, the first third of this episode is Recap both through the opening narration and the character's dialogue, and Thorpe whining about how everything is his fault. Well, I guess I shouldn't really say whining, because it wasn't really out of place, and, and maybe only a little bit over the top. I'm, I'm actually impressed how well the actor pulled that off, given the other similar scenes we've had in, in past storylines, and in Clark's melodramatic you know, whining early in the storyline. The, the actor that played Thorpe, really did a good job in his in his role in this story um given the wide range of emotions he had to express in various scenes you know there was happiness and despair and hopefulness and desperation and so on i don't know who the actor was but hopefully they'll have him back in the future for other parts there was one cute scene in this episode that i skipped over in my synopsis It happens just as Superman is trying to sneak off the boat with a very injured Captain Maddox.
2: Now to reach the starboard deck without being spotted by one of the crew. Easy. Easy. So far, so good. Only a few more steps to go. Ah, here's the deck. A split second to reach the rail and and then off. Oh, no, wait. Someone's coming. A sailor. little too close for comfort. I'll wait until he gets behind the deckhouse and then the coast will be clear. Now,
4: up, up, and away!
0: I love those little scenes they throw in. Sometimes the stories can get so bogged down in plot or reminders of plot that it's fun to have those little filler scenes sometimes. There's also a nice little bit of continuity in this episode one of several in this this storyline, actually, as Jimmy starts to tell Bill how Clark helped him out as, at his aunt's, which was the Lighthouse Point story. Bill hushes him before he gets the story out, but I loved the reference. One bad thing, and they did this several times throughout the story, but this is I think this might be the first episode where they did it, but they keep referencing to Escobar as a half-breed. Now, I know he's the villain, and I know it's 1940 where... Racism is rampant and even accepted, but still, that's no excuse. It's wrong and really uncomfortable, especially in a show that eventually takes a very firm and progressive stance against racism and intolerance. Episode 94. There's a nice, brief moment in this episode, and this is after Superman has rescued Bill and Jimmy from the fire, and they've met up with Clark, and they are recovering in the doctor's office, but there's a nice moment when Clark explains dehydration to Jimmy and the listener.
3: All right, come on, Jimmy. Another glass of water. Oh, Mr. Kent, that's all I've been doing,
5: drinking water. My insides are floating.
3: <laughs> well, you know what Dr. Corallo said. Plenty of liquid. Being exposed to those hot flames so long dehydrated you.
5: What does that mean?
3: Well, when you've been dehydrated, most of the water is gone from your body, and the human body must have water to live. So down the hatch with it, young fellow. Okay. That's it.
5: That's the last glass I'll drink. I feel all right, Mr.
0: Kennedy. Another similar instance happens towards the end of the episode when Clark reminds Jimmy the difference between port and starboard, which he really should have known given that they were using those terms in the the Lighthouse Point storyline, but they just kind of played it off like Jimmy forgot. Anyway, both times the dialogue is a bit forced, but I like it. I like that the show is trying to be both educational and entertaining for the kids that are listening. A little later, Clark chides Jimmy for stowing away on the plane, saying it's the second time he'd done so. Again, I loved the nod to the previous story. Even though each story, you know, for the most part, pretty much stands on its own, I dig that the writers are at least acknowledging that the previous stuff happened. It makes a nice reward for regular listeners who pick up on it, and a sense of an ongoing story. Episode 95. I love that in this episode, it's Jimmy that sees Escobar uh, watching the boat. And last episode, it was Jimmy that saw Escobar and Carlos dropping the mines into the water. He, of course, didn't recognize that it was Escobar, but it makes Jimmy more than just the dumb little kid that Superman has to save all the time. You know, he's watching out, picking up on things that don't seem quite right. And speaking of seeing... Mr. Kent! Mr. Kent, where
5: are you? Here I am, Jimmy. What happened? I heard some explosions. You never saw anything like it. The Juanita was just about out of the channel when a man in a red cape and blue tights flew to the air, jumped into the water, and then things began to explode. Jimmy, what are you talking about? On my word of honor, Mr. Kent, the man in the red cape came out of nowhere. I was watching the Juanita when suddenly I saw him. Mr. Kent, do you think it was... Do you think it could have been... Who, oh, Jimmy? Superman.
2: Superman? Well, who's Superman?
5: You remember when Lois Lane was thrown out of an airplane by the Yellow Mask? Yes. He said a man in a red cape caught her in his arms and saved her. Oh,
2: Jimmy, you don't believe that sort of stuff, do you? I
5: tell you, I saw this with my own eyes. He was flying with his cape spread out like wings. You sure you feel all right, Jimmy? Well, can please believe me. Well, we'll talk about it later, Jimmy. I want need to doctor.
0: How awesome is that? Jimmy Olsen, copy boy, future pal, gets his very first glimpse of the Man of Steel. I love that he gets a first hand look at Superman's actions. And better yet, he even refers back to one of Lois's first encounters with Superman. I really wish I had more to say about this scene, but I really think the clip speaks for itself. And and really, it gets even better next episode. So we'll have to uh, talk about it a little bit more in just a few minutes. For what it's worth, Escobar and Carlos both saw Superman as well, and clearly other people have in the past. But Jimmy getting his first look is definitely historic, especially since he's so insistent about what he saw. And my final comment for this episode is... That Clark's excuse for how he got off the boat is really, really lame. And Thorpe accepts it way too easily. Episode 96, the sound effects in this episode were great. They were very spooky with the howling wind behind Jimmy as he's breaking into the cave. And speaking of, I love Jimmy's gumption at going after the gold himself. Boy,
5: I'm wondering know where that cave can be. Pretty well hidden. Oh. Even if I do find it, I don't suppose I'll be able to carry the ball back. So heavy. Well, at least I can tell Claude Kenton Professor stop where it is. Oh. I don't see anything that even looks like a cave. Wait. Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. Go ahead. Yes, it's a disc. The goal must be inside. Yes.
0: I don't want to say that this is my favorite interpretation of Jimmy. As I said, I think this type of portrayal for the character would lead to less story potential in the long run. But this precocious kid with a lot of moxie and a penchant for getting in over his head is a very fun depiction for Jimmy in this Golden Age era. It's a nice contrast to, and and, and actually perfectly complements, the square-jawed, no-nonsense Superman Of this Golden Age period. If they ever do a DC direct to video animated film or, (laughs) be still my heart, a live action movie set in the pre World War II 1940s, you know, with this rough and tumble Superman, I really hope that they go with this depiction of Jimmy. Unfortunately, one complaint about this episode is that the earthquake comes out of nowhere. I know there are earthquakes in the region where this story is set. Well, I'm pretty sure all the places are fictional, but at one point they say the Juanita was sailing out of Key West, so they're talking kind of about that large vicinity between Florida and Texas, I presumed. Uh, But anyway, there are fault lines and earthquakes in that vague area, but here it felt like it came up for no other reason than to throw one last obstacle in Superman's path and kill off the villains, which is another complaint. But thankfully... All of that is made up for with what is the greatest scene in the story, and perhaps the radio show so far, as Jimmy Olsen officially meets Superman.
2: I can see the whole town from up here, but no graveyard. Wait. Yes, there it is.
5: Faster, faster. That
2: looks like a cave beyond those rocks. is the entrance to a cave, but it's all blocked up. got to work fast. Jimmy's in there, he may be buried under tons of stone. Here goes. Oh, quake certainly made a mess of things. There, I'm through and into the tunnel. Jimmy! Jimmy! Oh, I hear him. I'm coming, Jimmy! He's behind this heavy wooden door, locked in. Get away from the door, Jimmy. It's coming down. Quickly, Jimmy. No time to talk. You hear that rumble? It's an earthquake. Come
5: on. The gold. Professor Dobbs, gold there in the
2: corner. I'll take it. Run down the tunnel before it collapses. Quick, I'll follow you. Okay. I've got the gold. Run faster, Jimmy. The tunnel's caving in behind us. Run. Thanks. Right.
5: There's the of the tunnel up ahead. Keep
2: going, Jimmy. No trip on any rocks. I won't. Ah, we made it, Jimmy. We made it. We're out. ah Look at that tunnel, flat as a pancake. But the earthquake seems to have stopped. Jimmy, what's the matter?
5: You're know, the luckiest boy in the world.
2: What makes you say that?
5: Me, Jimmy Olsen, standing here talking to Superman. Gee, do, do you always wear that red cape and, and the blue costume?
2: No, Jimmy. Not always.
5: You mean, sometimes you wear ordinary clothes like other men? That's right. Then who are you? What's your real name? I can't tell
2: you that now, Jimmy. But someday you may find out. Now I think I'd better be going. Your friend Clark Kent is looking for you and he'll be here in a few moments. Goodbye, Jimmy.
5: Goodbye, Superman. Superman.
2: What does Superman mean? Does he intend to reveal his double identity to Jimmy Olsen? To let Jimmy know he is Clark Kent? Don't forget to tune in next time and follow this exciting story with Superman.
0: Other people have had face-to-faces with Superman. But aside from the professor and his son in the second episode, nothing like this. And even better, he confides in Jimmy that he isn't always Superman. Superman. He doesn't come right out and specifically say, I have a secret identity. But clearly, he affirms that when Jimmy comes to that conclusion. And that's never happened before, aside from a rare time or maybe two, when he didn't have any other choice but to show both of his identities to one person. I love that Jimmy is the first person Superman actually trusts enough to confide in with that secret. Not only is it great given the relationship I know is coming from them down the road, but much like Robin in the Batman comics to this point, Jimmy is clearly being used as the character that the listeners can use to vicariously participate in in the story. I know they said in in an earlier episode that he's 14, but this storyline, and with the different actor, it feels more like he's being portrayed as... Twelve, or maybe even closer to 11, or or even as young as 10, really. Either way, that 8- to 14-year-old demographic is what the show is aimed at at this point, so that's clearly what Jimmy is meant to be. So now listeners putting themselves into the story get an extra treat because they are privy to information that no one else knows, and that's just fantastic. On a more real-world level, we're also seeing another advancement in the Everyone tries to find out Superman's secret identity gimmick that is going to become such a part of the character. In the comics, we've seen a few offhand references to it, but very random at this point. And in the radio, now that Jimmy knows Superman has a secret identity, I'm almost positive that it's going to become a recurring thing of Jimmy wondering about Superman and and when he'll keep his promise to share that secret. And it should be also interesting when the character of Lois is brought back into the show, and how that changes the dynamic, since Lois is still not completely aware that Superman isn't just a a careless product of a wild imagination, to borrow a phrase. So, definitely an important and historic moment on a lot of different levels. And I love that that's how they end the episode, and the story. You know, no tedious wrap-up, or... You know, sending away the characters, they just... Superman meets Jimmy and flies off, and bam! That's the end of the story. On kind of a downside, because of how they ended the episode, we are still left with a few small points. We don't know what happened to the gold. Unless Superman grabbed it before flying out of the cave, the entire expedition to the bottom of Octopus Bay was for nothing. Uh, We don't know what happened to Bill Wentworth. He really didn't get much attention at all after... Superman saved him from the fire, and it kind of feels like they just forgot about him. Hopefully they will touch on these at the beginning of the next storyline, which I know picks up pretty much right where this one left off. And even if they don't, Jimmy Olsen just met Superman, which is awesome. Overall, I really enjoyed this arc. Even discounting the final scene, which just might have sold me on the last storyline, as wretched as it was, I enjoyed it a lot. It kind of dragged a bit at the beginning. I think they spent maybe an episode or so too much time with Thorpe and the bathysphere underwater. You know, all those threats. But once Jimmy and Bill got involved and they had the second storyline to cut over to, it got a lot better. I haven't been able to put my finger directly on it, but something about this story just feels different. Maybe it was the scenery, maybe it was the length... Maybe it was a little of both. But it just felt more fun, um, lighter, more uh, more fresh tale. Maybe it was the, the different approach to the writing of it. One thing I noticed is that many of the cliffhangers weren't the big, over-the-top dramatic moments, but episodes breaking at points that you, you just might not expect kind of hard to explain, the break between episodes 94 and 95 is a a fairly good example. We have this fairly intense moment as the ship is heading into the channel when the mines have been placed, but the episode ends on a soft comment from Clark and Jimmy about how nothing could go wrong. They don't really play it up or make a sensational scene out of it, but if you're paying attention, you definitely pick up on the drama of the cliffhanger just the same. It just seems like a more mature approach to storytelling, even though they are still writing for kids. One thing that really impressed me is that there weren't any unnecessarily long recaps at the beginning of episodes. With the storyline being twice as long as most of the others, I was expecting longer and longer recaps as we got farther into the story. And we did get longer recaps, but they did a good job of just giving you the pertinent information... And yeah, there was a lot of recapping within the episodes themselves, especially in the last couple episodes, with the characters explaining what happened and so on. But on the whole, it was much better than I was expecting. And personally, I would prefer them to do a little extra dialogue in the episode, rather than having the narrator at the beginning explaining everything. Um, What was Dennis' dialogue in the episode was more often than not, delivered in a more natural manner that didn't always feel like they were recapping everything. Uh, Having it done in the episode, when it's done right, it's just a more dynamic way of, you know, re-presenting that information. This arc had a lot of characters, far more than any other story we've looked at. Some of them were so minor that I didn't even need to mention them uh, in the episode synopsis, because we had a lot of Maddox yelling to his crew and such, but still a lot more characters involved. The first time through it was it was it was confusing at times. But the second time it was a little easier. Although I, I guess that would be a negative comment, since as these originally aired, chances of hearing this episode a second time were very, very slim. If you are interested in hearing this uh awesome storyline, it's unfortunately never been officially released, but Like all the episodes, you can find them in a wide variety of places across the internet. And it was also adapted into the November 1941 issue of Radio and Television Mirror. I don't have that issue, unfortunately, so I can't tell you what was cut out. I sure wish I had it, because it would be interesting. As we've seen with the six-episode arcs, they have to cut a lot out of those to get them into the length for the magazine. So, a story twice that long... Would have, uh, taken some major leg trimming, I think.
4: I guess you weren't so tough after all, were you? Now it's time
1: to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. This can't be! It's still going up! 325 manga chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. Time to die! Dozens of characters, hundreds of enemies, and a whole lot of violence. That kind of violence is pointless! You see, Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. Oh, crap! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse as they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. I lied when I said you could
4: go. At least partially lied, for I will let you go to another dimension!
1: The next dimension. A Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.libsen.com. See ya. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. impossible! Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom.
4: What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view!
1: Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume.
4: I hated her so much! It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath heaving breaths.
1: But then the books actually hit, and opinions...
4: He likes it! He likes it!
1: Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson... J. David Weider... And... Michael Kaiser... Take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in... Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right or expect a visit from me.
0: The Superman who appeared six months ago could huddle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped?
1: Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures... Falling from the Sky Speaking in clicks and beeps Father would love this dream And Superman
0: You could do so much
1: good We could do so much good I am doing good, Lois Clark's such a loner, never really lets anyone get close to him The New 52 Adventures of Superman Available the first of every month on iTunes, and at new52superman.libson.com.
0: Well, everybody, thanks for joining me for this supersized episode. This is officially the longest episode I've ever done without a co-host, so I really appreciate you sticking around. Be sure to write in and let me know your thoughts on how I should handle the longer storylines in the future. Should I try to keep it to one episode, or would you prefer I split it up to keep the episode shorter? Either way, drop me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com and let me know your thoughts on it. Any other comments or feedback you have can also uh, be sent to that, that address as well, or you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter to send comments. Or you can leave comments at the website at greatcrypton.com. At the site, you will also find links to the RSS feed as well as the iTunes store, both of which can be used to subscribe to the show. If you use iTunes, any and all iTunes reviews are, as always, welcomed and appreciated. Don't forget the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network for all your Man of Steel needs. Both are really excellent sites and are regularly updated including items whenever there's new episodes of this show, so definitely check them out. Next episode, we will be back to the wonderful world of comic books for a look at Action Comics number 30. Before then, though, if you have time, please give a listen to my other podcast, Green Lanterns Light, which you can find at greenlanternslight.com. We should have a new episode out this coming weekend as we wrap up our look at Crisis on Infinite Earths and the Green Lantern Corps' involvement in that, so... Always lots of fun and exciting things happening over there. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman. And I'll talk to you later. Goodbye.
2: here is terrific have got to work fast find out what's wrong with the airline and speaking to you great scott what's that an octopus a huge octopus with its tentacles wrapped around our connections to the surface so that's what's causing the trouble and i'll soon settle him Up, up, up. come on unwrap yourself from those lines now. Ah. Oh, cups are mighty powerful. Guess I'll have to pull his tentacles off.
5: Ah. Here goes. Oh.
2: There, he's giving. A bit more and I'll have those lines free.
5: Ah. Ah. Now then.
2: Huh, ah. ah. broke him loose. Oh, but he's fastened his other tentacles around me. Trying to crush me, eh? Ah. Ah. He's giving, all right. Now, one last punch, all oh, my strength. Ah. Hit him square in the middle. Finished him. Now, back to the bathysphere and Professor Thorpe. Down, down, down.